BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We've got a new class of, of older persons. We've got a new mayor. These are ideas that we want to make sure are getting out there as the new, you know, new older persons are, are learning their job and learning they, you know, what, what they're going to be doing in their wards and so on. We also want them to know what are best practices for how, how money should be spent. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Sarah Wetmore, acting president of the Civic Federation, one of Chicago's oldest and most respected taxpayer watchdog groups. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You are in this position because of the sudden death of a beloved figure who was pretty much an institution in Chicago. Lawrence Massal, the longtime Civic Federation president, your predecessor, died suddenly from complications tied to heart surgery. It was a shock and it was a tremendous loss for the city of Chicago and, of course, for your organization. I went to the wake, Sarah, for Lawrence Massal. It was a genuine outpouring. I'm sure you were there, hundreds of people lining up for more than an hour just to pay their respects. That says a lot about who Lawrence Massal was and how much you and the city lost. What made Lawrence so special and how can you possibly fill his giant shoes? Well, to answer your second question first, it's not possible. Um, I, I don't think that anybody thinks that there's another Lawrence Massal out there. He was certainly one of a kind. I think what set Lawrence apart was his willingness to listen, um, his uh, his nonpartisanship, his um, ability to um, relate to everybody um, at any level of government, um, to the person on the street, everybody he met was his friend. Um, and he, you know, had a strong belief in um, the city of Chicago, in the state of Illinois, and what was possible um, for those for those places. So we miss him every day, um, the board and the staff of the Civic Federation. Um, but what we're doing is trying to uphold his legacy and do our best to advance the Civic Federation's mission. I don't envy you in replacing a legend like him. It's awfully hard to be that person. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Um, We are, you know, it's helpful that, you know, Lawrence had such an incredible, um, you know, plan for the organization. He, you know, our board of directors are so incredibly um, helpful and, um, you know, committed to our organization. All of those things have, have made my life um, certainly easier, um, you know, as we look for the next president um, of the organization. I couldn't have been more um, 
honored that the board put their trust in me to um, keep the organization going and thriving um, while we find our next leader. What made Lawrence so special and important also is that at a time when things are so divided and so partisan, that he made suggestions. He was a watchdog, but he did it with the class and dignity and without the finger pointing that you see so much. Absolutely. And I think this is why um, government officials um, could trust the recommendations that the Civic Federation makes is because they could know that they our recommendations were coming from data and evaluation, not from a, um, an ideological perspective. And we're genuinely intended to improve the functioning of the government going forward. After a death, all of us have no choice but to go on. So we do. And so are you. You recently released a report, same as you do every time Chicagoans elect a new mayor, outlining the financial challenges that Chicago is facing and making certain structural and management reform recommendations to save money and improve efficiency. You also analyze the pros and cons of a host of new and increased taxes, fines and fees without taking a definitive position on any of them. Many of these ideas were among the grab bag of proposals that Mayor Johnson made in his $800 million tax plan to bankroll these $1 billion in investment investments in people, as he put it. Let's talk about some of your specific recommendations. Cut the city council in half from 50 members to 25. This is a proposal that's been around for decades. I remember, and you probably don't remember this, I'm older than you, when now indicted and former alderman Ed Burke, the longest serving alderman in the history of Chicago made this recommendation. Of course, it went nowhere. Former Mayor Rahm Emanuel floated it again before taking office in 2011, before dropping it like the hot potato that it was. He didn't want to pick a fight with the city council whose support he needed to tackle the pension crisis and some of the other intransigent problems. And so he put it, uh, he, he put in the time to get to know the council and they turned into kind of a rubber stamp for him. Why are you bringing this up again, knowing that it will encounter similar resistance and also needs legislative approval in Springfield. Sure. So this is an idea that comes out of an analysis of where is the city of Chicago an outlier? This is certainly one of those places. The city of Chicago has 50 older persons. That's a significantly higher than almost any other large city in the United States. The average size of a city council for the largest 15 cities in the United States is 18 members. And so the idea that is here is that the city council is an outlier in terms of its size. So that's a, that's a place where we can take a look at how, where we might make reforms to bring Chicago more in line. And then, you know, if other cities can function with a smaller um, and therefore less costly, um, you know, city council, then there's no reason why the city of Chicago couldn't either. Additionally, um, over many years and many decades, different evaluations going back to the 1950s have shown that a larger city council tends to focus more on the minute um, different um, interests of their ward rather than functioning as a policymaking and oversight body and um, legislative companion to the mayor. So these um, reducing the size of the city council or getting that idea out there is 
presenting it to the new administration and to new city council members that there are different ways for the city council to operate going forward. So that could be accomplished by reducing the size of the city council um, and therefore enabling the um, members of the council to focus less on the minute um, uh, interest of their wards and more on policy making. Or it's an idea that we can get out there that the um, city council members themselves could think about how um, they might function more as a, as a legislative body. What would be the advantage of turning those ministerial uh, maintenance, you know, ward superintendent style duties over to city government and having the council focus as a policy making body? What what's the advantage of that? Haven't Chicagoans grown used to having their aldermen be the, essentially their ward superintendent and and complain to them when the snow doesn't get picked up or the garbage is is late and getting getting picked up? Sure. Well, I mean, the the idea of having an elected official um, is that, you know, you want to be able to hold them accountable for the policies that they make. You know, there's plenty of management across the city who, you know, are ready and willing to help if, if a um, or there could be a beefed up um, 311 system. There are many other ways to handle. And the, there is um, already. You know, the, there really yeah, is a, exactly. a beefed up 311 system. You, you report stuff by an app. You say the light is out I, in my street. Exactly. I, I am a, a resident of the city of Chicago and I have had, um, you know, lawn clippings picked up that way. So, you know, there are other ways just because the um, people in the city of Chicago have grown used to doing it this way. It doesn't mean it's the best or most efficient, effective way to handle the the needs of the of the residents. Additionally, you know, the, the members of the city council, they, um, you know, they should be focused on the policies of the, or more focused on the policies of the of the city. You know, I think that the, you know, different um, council members have said that, you know, focusing on um, constituent services takes up a lot of their time. So if the um, residents were able to, residents of the city of Chicago were able to use other sources to get their um, service needs fulfilled, that would free up additional time for um, council persons to have more um, focus on policy issues. But you know they're going to try to protect their little fiefdoms. Well, I mean, again, we have a whole new we have a whole new class of um, of council members um, who you know are going into this job you know for the first time. There are there's definitely whenever there is a change in um, city council or an administration, it's a time to rethink how things are done. You also want to merge the elected jobs of city clerk and treasurer and make it the singular mayoral appointment. Lori Lightfoot campaigned on a version of this promise. She dropped it in favor of working together with city clerk Anna Valencia and treasurer Melissa Conyers Irvin. Why should we do this? So this is a recommendation that the Civic Federation makes, not just at the city level, but at other levels of government as well. And it's intended to um, provide ideas on how to more, how to streamline government, how to make it more efficient. You know, for example, we um, recommended for many years that the Cook County Clerk's Office and the Recorder of Deeds Office ought to be um, consolidated, and they were several years ago. We've also made the recommendation that the elected um, Illinois um, comptroller and treasurer's offices ought to be consolidated. So it's a, you know, the idea here is a, is several fold, you know, consolidating offices can um, create cost savings. It's also the idea that, you know, you want a 
policymaking position um, to be held uh, accountable to the voters. So, you know, your members of the city council are supposed to be policymakers. Your mayor is, is a policymaker. So they need to be elected and accountable to the voters. However, these um, positions um, like city clerk and treasurer are implementing policy. They're not making it. And so, you know, those, those kinds of positions can be delivered by appointed offices. For example, the city comptroller is appointed. But it's used to appease certain ethnic groups. I mean, there's, you know, there's many different ways to appoint positions and decide who, you know, how to make representation happen. It, the idea here is to, is to evaluate how to best deliver services to the people of the city of Chicago. Civilianizing the police department to free sworn officers to fight stubbornly high levels of violent crime and get CPD out from under a federal consent decree. This one is really a head scratcher for someone like me who's been around such a long time. The reason being that every single mayor since Richard M. Daley has made a very public show of transferring police officers from desk job to street duty. And yet you say that even with all of those efforts, more than 93% of the 14,058 budgeted positions in the Chicago Police Department in the 22 budget uh, were uh, sworn personnel. That's 13.8 sworn officers for every single civilian employee. That's a head scratcher to me. How could this have been done so publicly so many times and it's still so bad? Well, I think that it's, you know, there's a number of reasons for this. You know, one is going to be that, you know, civilianization, you know, any kind of change to personnel policy is, you know, takes some doing and some political will to implement. And it, you know, and particularly this one um, could require some upfront costs in order to implement. And so, programs that have upfront costs but could save money over the long run are not aren't always the um the projects are going that are going to be picked first by a more short-term focused um you know elected official um right so in order to hire additional civilians but there are in addition to long-term savings there are other potential advantages of increasing the um number of civilians who work in the chicago police department one of them is that you know they it could possibly free up some of the um, sworn officers who are now performing administrative duties to other kinds of duties. Um, you know, there is a need in the that we see um, in the Chicago Police Department to um, sort of better evaluate and communicate how the department is making choices on personnel. Um, that is, for example, how do they allocate um, officers across the city? There's not enough um, transparency in terms of how they're doing that. What data do they use? Um, there, there needs to be a public evaluation of how many officers the city needs. Um, you know, and also, you know, how far short of that level are we right now? And so civilianization could be a part of that larger evaluation of the staffing of the Chicago Police Department. And should be, you believe, that they should look again at the beat allocation, the, the allocation of officers, which they have claimed to have done, and then keep the report secret. They need to do it again. And as part of that, you think they need to speed up civilianization, which in other cities, civilians hold 22% of law enforcement jobs with 3.5 sworn officers for every one civilian employee's 
compared to our almost 14 sworn officers for every civilian employee. Precisely. You know, and and as you sort of noted in here, it's really important that the department be transparent about these, um, about, as you noted, there's been some staffing evaluations that haven't been publicly released that were done by outside organizations, well-respected ones. Um, and there's just a general need for additional transparency and data, um, use of data evaluation and transparency and how um, findings are communicated to the public on a number of um, areas in the Chicago Police Department, um, but particularly on staffing. The $9.50 a month garbage collection fee was implemented in 2015. It's been frozen ever since. You say it's nowhere nearly high enough to offset the $100 million cost of uh, removing waste from 600,000 Chicago households. You say there should be an annual increase. How much? And should it be tied to the rate of inflation, like the annual property tax increase that Lori Lightfoot convinced the city council to lock in and Mayor Brandon Johnson has vowed to repeal? So the implementation of the garbage fee um, was something um, that was done in order to, it, a fee-based system is basically where the people who benefit from a service, such as the 600,000 households currently benefiting from um, city provided garbage collection, then pay for that service. So when the, um, we supported when that fee was first put into place, but noted that there needed to be a full cost of services study across the city to evaluate how close to offsetting the cost of the service that fee would be. That still needs to be done, um, and it definitely the um, you know the the fee is supposed to generate approximately 61.7 million dollars in FY 2023. But as you noted, the city spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year on garbage collection, so we're not getting close enough to offsetting the cost of that um, collection fee, which could free up city revenues for other kinds of services. It's these kinds of it's those are those are the kinds of trade-offs we're looking at, and there could be other services the city provides that might be um, that might be good candidates for a fee. But the city needs to do an evaluation of how much those services cost, both direct and indirect costs, to get a good idea of what the fees would need to be set at, and so on. What about a volume-based fee? That's been talked about over the years to encourage recycling and so on and 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 you know i mean you should pay for how much service that you use right i mean and certainly that's been implemented with the um water um fees at the you know more and more water meters have were put into place um which allows you know people to be charged based on their use there's you know there's a lot of different ways um that the city could go about um charging fees to the users of different services and it's a really good idea to you know, not you don't want to set and forget something. You want to continually evaluate whether that's the right um, way to raise revenue to pay for the to pay for the service and so on. You want to reform the aldermanic menu program that alderman treasure and turn the choices over to the Chicago Department of Transportation. They're going to fight like cats and dogs to keep that. You know that. So that's. I mean. We have certainly seen that in the past. Um, however, this is an area where the city, it falls short of best practices as established by the Government Finance Officers Association. So best practices in terms of how the city spends capital um, include 
queuing to a comprehensive multi-year um, financial plan, which is based on need. The aldermanic menu program spreads revenue across all of the 50 wards, not based on need. So this has been the uh, menu program, and it's not just the Civic Federation that has um, critiqued this before. The um, and Chicago Inspector General, uh, in an audit and follow-ups to that audit, has um, critiqued um, how it, it that it underfunds residential infrastructure needs um, and that it generates funding disparities because there are disparities in terms of need between the wards. Um, so additionally, it's, it is a better practice for the capital spending to be based on an evaluation by professionals such as the in the Department of Transportation um, and that, you know, maintenance, all of those things need to be part of the plan as well. Right. But mayors drop it like a hot potato because they want to get along with the city council and they don't want to pick a fight that they can't win or that is going to cause them to have problems in other votes. Sure. But, you know, again, as I was as I was saying before, we've got a new um, class of um, of older persons. We've got a new mayor. Um, these are ideas that we want to make sure are getting out there. As the um, new, you know, new older persons are are learning their job and learning they, um, you know, what what they're going to be doing in their wards and so on, we also want them to know what are best practices for how how money should be spent. You know, these ideas are controversial, and you've argued that you need to get them out into the bloodstream, as you put it, as Chicago grapples with five major fiscal challenges that you have identified. One is the enormous $33 billion pension shortfall that has left Chicago's four city employee pension funds with assets to cover just an average of 24% of their liabilities. Second, a rate of homicides and other violent crimes that remains markedly higher than major cities, other major cities. Third, a chronically high liability burden, the debt, Fourth, a continued structural deficit. And finally, the avalanche of federal stimulus funds that will no longer be available soon to prop up the city's budget and all these other budgets, CPS, CTA, the Park District, everywhere. You talk about the need to unravel financial entanglements between the city and the Chicago Public Schools before an elected school board is phased in and fully seated. Lori Lightfoot started to do this by offloading pension and security and maintenance costs from the city to the public schools to balance her own budgets. What more needs to be done there and why? So there was the, um, as a part of the legislation that created that, or that will create the new um, elected and then and hybrid school boards um, in the next cu couple of years, there was a requirement that the um, city perform a report, or I mean the Chicago Public Schools issue a report on those entanglements between the city and the Chicago Public Schools. And it's important to note here that this is a unique relationship in the state of Illinois. Other municipalities don't have any, don't have a financial responsibility to their um, school districts. They're completely separate. So the need here is that ahead of, you know, the complete separation of the um, Chicago Public Schools and the city of Chicago, that there needs to be there there needs to be an evaluation of what kind of um, financial responsibilities, if any, the city should retain once the mayor no longer has um, is no longer appointing members of the uh, Chicago uh, Public School Board. 
And so these are significant areas to both of these governments' budgets. And so it's important that these questions be squared away before um, those governments are completely um, separated. There needs to be a plan put into place for how each of these governments can handle those things. Importantly, the Chicago Board of, uh, I'm sorry, the Illinois Board um, of Education is going to be issuing its own report evaluating how well um, CPS can um, uh, function without support from the um, from the city government. And that's supposed to be coming out by July 1st. So we'll also be looking forward to that evaluation as well. So are you saying that the city should wash its financial hands of CPS when this happens, when the elected board is seated and it's sort of an on, you're on your own kid thing? Not at all. What we're saying is that there ought, there needs to be some kind of plan because, you know, in, in future years um, when there isn't at a, you know, this sort of legal uh, relationship between the two governments, there will need to be that CPS will need to have a plan for how it's going to fo be, go forward. And um, the city government will ha need to have a plan for how it goes forward. You know, with the payments between the two governments, there will be impacts on both of their budgets. And so what we're saying is that there needs to be a plan for how they're going to move forward. If the choice is made that they ought to be completely separate and not make payments between the two of them, then both governments need to prepare for that eventuality. Um, but there could there could be a decision made that there's going to be some kind of intergovernmental agreement going forward between the two. So it's it's just going to be important to be transparent and um, you know intentional about how they move forward. Does CPS need to do to have uh, taxing power beyond just raising property taxes to the limit every year like they do? I think that this is going to be something that the Chicago Public Schools, um, that city leadership, that state leadership need to evaluate going forward. So. Chicago Public Schools is going to be facing a significant budget deficit in a couple of years with the end of federal pandemic funding. However, it's not the only um, city, it's not, not the only school district in the state that's going to, or in the United States that's facing the same challenge. So much like th there is a process underway right now um, to identify potential funding and governance changes for public transit in Illinois, there ought to be a similar evaluation for public schools um, as well. It's important that, you know, all of them be funded um, sufficiently. You know, the state passed its evidence-based funding formula several years ago, and that has improved um, Chicago Public Schools' financial sust sustainability and other um, school districts' financial sustainability. But of course, the, the state has not yet been able to fully fund um, its evidence-based funding formula. So. There are um, Chicago public schools and other school districts are still short of what the state considers to be adequate levels of funding. Mayor Johnson blocked a firefighter's pension sweetener that would have eliminated the two-tier pension system for new and old employees. He formed his own pension committee that met for the first time this week. What do they need to do? What do you expect them to come up with? Haven't we really studied this issue to death? Don't we need new sources of revenue? Well, I think that the tier two issue is something that could benefit from additional analysis. So just as a reminder to your listeners, um, tier two is a, is a second mo much lower level of benefits provided to most um, government employees hired uh, starting in 2011. Um, and at that time and since, there have been um, occasional um, notes from observers that there could come a time when those benefits aren't going to pass muster um, 
with federal IRS rules um, that require, you know, folks that don't receive Social Security to receive a pension benefit equivalent to it. So the the question here is, what when is that going to happen, and what kinds of changes would be needed to benefits to avoid it, and you know how much would it cost? So the Civic Federation's perspective is that because the state imposed this on the you know on all of the most of the local government pension funds across the state at one time the state ought to be taking a comprehensive look at the issue when it's going to come to fruition what they can do to ameliorate it um, as well rather than issuing one-off um, changes which we don't know if they're the the lowest cost changes or not or whether they would be sufficient to um, address the problem or not where we don't have a good idea of how much it's going to cost so what we would like to we would like to see additional study for this particular portion of the problem and we do we thought it was a step in the right direction for um, mayor johnson to request additional time to have his or to have his um working group study the problem but we do need new revenues. I mean, you yourself have have warned that casinos are not reliable, even if they do fabulously well. They're not going to come nearly close to shoring up these police and fire pension funds that are near bankruptcy. That is absolutely true. You know, the, the, the city has made significant progress over the eight year, last eight years in getting itself onto a statutory funding formula that has a relationship to the actuarial needs of the funds and then finding the revenues that were needed to climb that ramp. Um, so we're not expecting um, the cost of that of the annual cost of the pensions to increase as much as it has in the past years but we do expect it to increase there's going to be you know occasional investment losses and then there's the potential for these tier two changes to increase costs as well so and as you note the the casino could be helpful but it's not a reliable source of revenue so yes additional resources are going to need to be found for years and years um, for these pension funds. And those they're already taking up 20% of the city's budget. So that's 20% of funds coming in that can't be spent on other priorities. So where should the revenues come from? Well, I mean, that's going to be um, a an evaluation that the um, Johnson administration and the city council are going to need to you know, to evaluate. And that's part of why we include a an evaluation of a number of different kinds of revenue sources, as you noted, without taking a position on any of them, um, to provide a one-stop shop where the, the leadership in the city can take a look at what's required for these revenue sources. Can the city impose it themselves or would it require state, state a change to state statute? What kinds of considerations um, go into um, developing what level they would be charged at, who would be charged, and so on. So there's there's a lot of considerations that are going to need to go into figuring out these revenue sources. Are there ones that you consider easier to implement, more realistic, uh, higher return? Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, any elected official would tell you that any kind of, of um, tax increase is difficult. Um, you know, all of these have, and, you know, we, ha we list both pros and cons for all of them. So, you know, even um, revenue sources that don't require a change to state statute, um, such as the property tax um, and uh, several others, they are, you know, there's a reason why property taxes are considered one of the third rails of politics. They're very visible. Um, they get, uh, 
taxpayers get billed twice a year. Um, however, they they are very reliable. So it it requires a an evaluation of you know what kind of a lift and um, what kind of a political will there is um, behind you know any kind of revenue source. And Mayor Johnson is not taking Lori Lightfoot's word for it when she claims to have left the city in great financial shape with an $85 million shortfall that is among the lowest in recent history. He's doing his own fiscal forecast and holding a series of community roundtables next month before he even releases that document, let alone his own budget. What do you think of that? Well, I think that that's that's certainly reasonable for an incoming um, administration and financial team to want to take a look under the hood. You know, several things have changed since the um, Lightfoot administration um, released that um, financial forecast. For example, the state of Illinois has seen its um, revenue projections soften somewhat. Um, there have also um, there are also her team was also clear that they included in their projections a number of um, assumptions, assumptions that the yeah. Johnson. Yeah, that the Johnson administration might not agree with. For example, they um, one of those assumptions was that the property tax would go up um, based on CPI, and that's something that the um, that uh, Mayor Johnson has expressed discomfort with. So there, it, it's we think it's completely She's also uh, set aside this all the pension, all the surplus, the hundreds of millions, six hundred million or so surplus that she claimed for last year and this year uh, for pensions, and he's undoing that too. He's not going to, he's not going to devote all that, that uh, surplus, if there is one that big to that when he's got all these people promises. Well, I mean, I guess we'll, we're, we are, you know, looking forward to seeing the projections um, as they they come out in the, in the fall um, from the um, the mayor's financial team and his plans for the for the budget. You know, there we the Civic Federation thought that setting aside the um, the surplus for pensions was a good idea, but there are plenty of of you know good ways to spend um, you know one time revenues. Capital funding is one, um, you know, and reducing debt is another. So you know we'll look forward to seeing how the Johnson administration plans to use those resources. What we would caution against is using um, one time resources, which is what fund balance is for ongoing projects. Right. And do you do you suspect that his analysis will will not be an eighty five million dollars shortfall, that it'll be bigger? There are a couple of uh, like I said, there are a couple of things that will be impacting that projection, you know, whether he makes the um, projection that property taxes will increase. But also there have been some, um, you know, some news from the state that's going to impact revenues in the coming year. Um, for example, the Illinois Department of Revenue has issued some guidance that um, that personal property replacement tax revenue is going to be going down. Um, do, and that has shown up, for example, in the county's um, revenue projections, as well as the Chicago Public Schools revenue projections going down for the coming year. So there, you know, there the Lightfoot um, administration and her financial team issued projections based on what they knew in April. But of course, many things are happening um, since then. Um, and additionally, there will be there is a possibility for recession in the coming year. So there's lots of really good reasons to update those projections going forward. Sarah Wetmore, thank you so very much for joining us. You uh, you did yourself proud and your organization proud. And I think Lawrence would be proud as well. I'm sure he's listening. Oh, thank you so much. And we will see you all next week. Thank you.